Hello, and welcome back to the periphery. I'm Afi, and this week, in honor of Black History Month, I am sharing the story of Maggie Pittman, also known as my great-grandma baby. She died a year ago, and the last thing she asked me to do was to share her story, and since I have all these recordings that I took when I was a sophomore in college of our conversations, I figured what better time to do that than now. While Grandma Baby is no longer with us, I decided to start <laughs> recording our conversations and even just talking and asking about her life because, you know, I considered the fact that she was a black woman born in the 1930s and she started, and she'll tell you, I've got the recordings, uh, she started her life picking cotton and she ended up owning a home in downtown Savannah, Georgia. And I thought that was such a success story and I wanted to understand the contours of that. And this was really important for me on a personal level. You know, I went to UC San Diego. I was admitted with, I think, like a 1900 SAT back when it was on a 2400 scale. And that was about one or 200 points below the average. So I had this self-belief that I was here for one reason, affirmative action. And maybe that's true, but I let that belief almost hold me back from doing my best, from trying my best and from putting myself in spaces that, quite frankly, I didn't see myself in. I was basically the only black kid in all of my classes, despite how diverse UCSD was. All my professors were white or Asian or European, and all my friends were basically the same with a handful of Latino students. So every sing <laughs> Also, this is a different thing, but every single day, I'd be asked if I was an athlete, like every day from the first maybe year I was there, every single day. So I just kept hearing the message that I was only here for one reason, and that's it. Not to be smart, not to contribute, just to be here and be black. Not true. <laughs> I needed to tap into a history I could relate to of accomplishment, of putting your head down, and pulling yourself up. And I thought, what better person to turn to than a woman who has been able to own a home in Savannah after growing up on generously a farm with 15 of her relatives uh, back down in the deep south of Georgia. So I figured now during Black History Month was a really good time to share her story. The first is that she's exceptional and she asked me to and what better platform than the one that I helped make. Uh, the second though is that her story really saved me. Uh, it saved my psyche, it saved my self-esteem from the disease of self-doubt that I've seen holds people back from their limitless potential, whether they're black, white, Latino, woman, whatever identity or from the identity handbook you want to grab. I've seen that a lot of it is in our own minds, and this was a woman who refused to let what the world was telling her dictate what she could become. And the last reason is it's Black History Month, and... A lot of these histories, these stories, are not captured in a way that provide context for where we are at as a country today. And I find her story so valuable for that context. And we'll discuss that after we begin. Just one more disclaimer, and I could go on forever because you, you won't know me at this point. I can talk. Um, 
I'm, I was going to cut, cut up the story, this interview, this particular recording, and make it artful, but I'm just going to play it. You're going to kind of jump in five minutes into a conversation, and that's it. Anyway, <laughs> that's all. Let's begin, and I'm so happy to introduce you to my great-grandma, Baby. My daddy got sick. <laughs> I had to attend to the phone. Uh huh. And that means we could, I couldn't go to school because I, I finished school two years later. Because I always loved school. And well, my sisters, they are. We all had to drop out of school, you know, during that time, because they had to do the farming. What grade were you in? We're coming to back up pre-prima. Into what? Just started. They call it pre-prima. Okay. You know, like, like these kids now have, you know, preschool and all of that. We couldn't go because we had to walk through the woods to school. And we had to cross a log of water. A tree was across a little stream of water. So we get on that tree and walk across. And well, they stayed out of school for two years. Then Dad got, you know, got a well. And finally we had to move from that house because grandma, well, we didn't know and daddy didn't know, mama didn't know. He wouldn't pay the taxes on the, on the house. Mm. So therefore, Do you know why? It was a lot of land back there. That's back there, <coughs> the cemetery now where my um Monastery. At the cemetery I grew up there, I've been going there for ever since 1962, except one year. Mm. When my daughter Janice passed. That was just when I was uh, in high school, yeah. I was with, I was with her mother's day. And I've been going over that cemetery. And that cemetery is still there, you know, mm-hmm. back there, close to Mm-hmm. 
So after that, we... What was, like, different about it? Yeah. Well, it was still a country time, but they had a little recreation thing, like a club. And uh, we'd go visit the club. And one or two little stores and uh, restaurants where you could go eat. Uh, one or two colored business, but they're like a dry cleaners and uh, a little fish places where they sell fish sandwiches. And my brothers went in the service and we had a 36 Ford. And uh, I even tried to drive it because I drive around the around the block, not on the highway. And my sister would drive it and we we had that. We thought we were, you know, up high class. We we didn't call ourselves country children anymore. We call other people <laughs> who lived out on the rural. We called them country. <laughs> and we were just as country as we could be. <laughs> but, Looking at them, we don't had moved up, you know. Yeah. We living in the city land. So finally, Daddy got a job at Union Camp. We moved to Savannah. Um, when we moved to Savannah, we moved on 30, 38th Street, the next street over. Mm-hmm. And we stayed, we moved here in 19... 47. And, um, and I loved school, and I didn't finish until 1952. See, I was 21 years old when I finished, but I should have finished at 18. Okay, is this when you finished high school? Yeah, finished high school at 20. Because, you know, Daddy got sick, and <clears throat> we were living in the country, and I couldn't go and uh, had to drop out for two years. What type of things did you learn in school? Well, we learned about Columbus. Uh, we had history then. George Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mean what kind of courses I took? Sure. Well, we had civics, uh, English, the basic subjects, math, and all of that. But um, what I books? What, what books did they have you all read? Did you like remember any of the required readings? Could do what now? Do you remember any of the books you all had to read? Okay. Like, uh, like they got now, you know, but the children have to read. I see. But we just had, well, the books we had, they were handed down from the white schools. And then, and they didn't give us the updated books. Uh, okay. 
history book reading about Columbus, I think, discovered America. 1492, I believe it is. Wasn't that right? Uh, something like that. I think that's right. George Washington president and all kind of things like that. Mm. And so, well, anyway, the work, you know, people had, we had to do. The black folks, you know, when I was talking about when we were coming up in the country, uh -huh. the work we had to do was, you know, in the field work. Pick cotton. They plant cotton, and you had to chop. We say chop cotton. That means you had to chop the grass. Like they don't do that now. They got a tractor. Mm. That's all I dealt with. Like picking cotton. Picking cotton. You got to have a sack on your back. And they had a strap on it, put it over your shoulder. Then you stoop over at each row and you had to pick, pick that white cotton out of the burrow, put it in the sack. Then they had a wide sheet. You'd go at the end of the row and you sheet down. And when you get your sack pulled, you'd have to drag it there and empty it. So that's how most our black folk made a living because, you know, they didn't have the skills. Right. I, I, remember you I remember you telling me uh, once that you always picked the most cotton. Yeah, I, I always loved money, you know. <laughs> like, like, I don't have anything to say. Um, I didn't have to go pick the cotton because, see, I was the, the baby. But... I went out, I got up early every morning and we had a truck. The white man would, that on the farm, uh, would pick us up early in the morning. You know, the dew had everything wet. And we'd be completely wet until the sun come out and dry us off. So we'd pick that cotton and I'd open up the wet. You know, the ones that's not open good. Uh-huh. You know, they're wet, the burr and the cotton. Right. The burrs. Because I wanted mine to wait and I'd open up them things and stick them down in there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> cotton is fluffy and they take a lot of cotton. Sometimes I pick 200. So <laughs> I'd have all them wet burrows dying in there. They're like, damn, baby, how you picking so much cotton? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm on my Like, like areas, you don't see them now like you used to. Uh-huh. And uh, plums and stuff. You could all go side the highway and you'd see berries and you just could pick them and we'd go sell them. Wow. And for five cents. Five cents a pint, I think it was. 
How much would you get for cotton? Pe- how much would you get for like two hundred pounds of uh, picking? Yeah. Per pound. Uh huh. That's really good. Fifty cents. Yeah. No, cotton don't weigh that way whole. No, I thought that way that wasn't much. Fifty cent per. I mean, I wasn't picking the cotton, so I don't know. But uh, a hundred dollars. No. Was the fifty cent per hundred pounds? Oh, so a dollar per pound, a hundred pounds. That's not a lot. Yeah. Okay. I thought you were saying you got fifty cent per individual pound, but you got fifty cents for fifty pounds. Yeah. So you got a cent per pound. It's not that much, right? And then, I, and then I used to go and work with the, in these white people's homes after school. What year was this? Like in the in the in the like in the fifties. During the time I was in school. Okay. See, I finished in fifty two. That must have been in the forties too. Right. We moved in '47. Okay. It had to be in the '50s, and the '50s one we did that because I got married, you know, soon when I finished school. How old were you? I was twenty when I got married. To Brogy? When I finished. Yeah, the devil. <laughs> married the devil. Did I ever meet Brogy? Uh, yeah, I shouldn't have gotten mad, but I was in love, you know. Yeah. But anyway, after I married him, I said, now nah, I'm not going to go in these white people's house working, you know, for 25 cents. What was it like working in the houses? Like, how would they treat you and stuff? Right. You know, we had certain places we had to eat. And um, the white people, you couldn't eat in their restaurant. And then they had a drugstore and we'd go in there, but we couldn't sit down and drink a soda or nothing. Mm. <laughs> we would have to. Were there any, like, horror stories or, like, any, like, really extreme news that would circulate? Yeah, it's just like, what is it like? Uh, hey, who's that? Hey, Tara. 
just just uh just checking in. <laughs> hey y'all, I had finished. Yeah, I I can call you I can call you sometime this weekend. I can call you sometime this weekend. Oh. I I just no I just been curious for a while and uh I just no I've just been really curious for a while and so uh I just wanted to, wanted to start asking you know Well anyway so because I have a story to tell cuz you know when the integration I came up doing that I'd love to hear about I, that And I was one of the first two blacks to integrate our vocation of school Really? And on Bay Street. In what year? That was on 60... I'm a band 63. And what, in, in what, in like... In the, the, I, and I took a business course. The first two in, in what, just where? The first two blocks where? I'm sorry, I missed that part. What did, what did you say? The, you said you were the, one of the first two blocks where? understand that. some of your experiences? accessible or was it really hard to get your education I guess it's pretty it was pretty hard because like uh were were people were white like students pretty aggressive towards you
and then typed it out. So anyway, I did good on that because everybody was taking the test, getting up, giving the papers, and I was the last one. I just told her, I said, oh, I'm so nervous. She said, what you nervous about? You thought you weren't going to finish. And I went back the next day. She said, I made 100. That's amazing. So I went on. I went on until I got enough learning, you know, and went and took the test, and I got the job at the school. So I hope you got something from. No, I I loved all of that. I mean, I'd I'd really like to hear more of your stories if I could call you uh, again sometime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So there you have it. The story of Maggie Pittman. God rest her soul. Um, she was so generous with the story, and there's just so, a few things that really kind of make me laugh and also infuriate me in her story. So I'm gonna start with what infuriates me because it's Black History Month and there's so much to celebrate. But what infuriates me is one, you see the story of women in the story of her when her dad or her grandfather, I can't remember, it wasn't really clear in the beginning, didn't pay taxes, which totally squandered all their lives. And they didn't know, the woman didn't know, and they had no choice but to move. The brothers had to drop out of school, and she had to stop school for two years when she was just getting started. Um, and it's nice that we live in a society now where the mistakes of one person no longer can affect basically an entire generation, um, like it did for hers. Two, the schooling and the use of schooling to keep people out, you know, I think, well, one, it was so recent. This is the 50s and 60s we're talking. This is so recent. <laughs> you know, we just started going to school together, y'all. That's crazy. And I really hope a lot of my classmates that listen to this, a lot of my friends that listen to this, really grapple with how recent that is and who, arch- who created <laughs> that type of structure and system and how they're still alive and how that spirit is perhaps alive in you and in people I love and in people I call my dear friends where the expectations for me aren't the same and where the uh where I'm always expected to give more understanding than I'm generally given. And I'm not saying it's a race thing, but I just haven't noticed the same level of scrutiny applied to experiences as they have been to mine when it comes to the very narrow experience of racism. Even though I am generally well known as being among the most honest people at this school. But hopefully this recency and that story triggers some internal reflection on how that spirit, that racist spirit, is still very much alive intimately. And how my grandmother had to overcome so much, so many daily battles that, you know, became normal to her. Like, what's not in this interview and this recording was, uh, I have it somewhere else, I just, I literally spent so long trying to find them. She would walk 10 miles one way to school, and a white bus would pass her by, or a bus carrying white kids. And that was how much she loved school. And that's a core 
feature of success stories in black America, in my family at least, the ones who were able to own a home were exceptional. And I don't think one should need to be exceptional. One should need to want to love school so much and walk so far because I see you Stanford Law classmates, you all do not love school this much, most of you. Just to own a home, um, and not just, because that's a huge accomplishment that a lot of us can't even do today. And, I mean, that's about the extent of all the stuff that infuriated me, things I found hilarious and so American. One, she loved money. Don't we all? Mm, we're a money country. <laughs> Two, the delusions of grandeur when she moved from Sylvania, I think, to another city, maybe Savannah. It was hard for me to really parse. That's hilarious to me. Uh, and you see it everywhere. You see people, and you see it so much in this country of people just obtaining status through capital, through symbols, the car. I think California and the car, you know, I'm enamored by California in no small part because of how the car enabled it to develop into this delusional state that it is. But that's the conversation for another day. Um, and finally, well, I actually think that's it. I don't think I have a finally, other than to say happy Black History Month, and maybe read The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, maybe read Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin. There were so many other scholars. Maybe read my mother's scholarship. She's Tar Blackshear. She's an epic scholar. And thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining the conversation. You can find us everywhere you find podcasts, everywhere. And we'll be back next week with another epic episode because that's what we do at the periphery we have epic episodes see you next week